Hello again, and welcome to our Governing Health Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Peregrine. Today's conversation focuses on something central to the role of the governing board, the expectation that leaders will act in an ethical manner, and related, that the board will promote an organizational culture that encourages ethical conduct. It's the old tone-at-the-top thing, and in many respects, it dates back to the Sarbanes era and the expectation that companies will adopt organizational codes of ethics, especially for financial officers. Now, most healthcare companies have adopted these kinds of codes and work hard to promote their values. But in some instances, perhaps understandably, the code's grown a little stale. It's picked up a little dust and perhaps not been updated in recent memory. That's why we want to consider AdvaMed's bold action in revising its own long-standing code of ethics. AdvaMed's trying to clarify and distinguish appropriate activity between healthcare professionals and representatives of AdvaMed's member companies. And as most of you know, AdvaMed is the world's largest medical technology association and advocates on behalf of its member companies for ethical standards, timely patient access to safe and effective products, and economic policies that reward value creation. And to help us understand the scope and purpose of the new AdvaMed code, I'm delighted to welcome my longtime friend and former partner, Chris White, who's its chief operating officer, general counsel, and secretary. But before we turn to Chris, let's pause to revisit a theme we've discussed from time to time on the podcast, and that's the importance of management to board reporting on key issues of risk, quality, and compliance. This has come to light in a recent and very important Delaware decision involving a major listeria outbreak involving a well-known dairy company. In the context of a shareholder derivative action, The Delaware court concluded that the absence of an effective reporting system by which the management team would inform the board of compliance issues could constitute a breach of the board's caremark oversight responsibilities. In other words, if the board makes no effort to make sure that it's receiving timely, effective, and contextual risk and compliance updates from management, the board members themselves could be held liable for breach of fiduciary duty. And in this case, there was no such update process. Following this significant decision, the board should work closely with the general counsel and the compliance officer to review the scope, quality, and frequency of the vertical risk reporting system. Now, let's turn to Chris and get his perspectives on the broad health industry significance of the new AdvaMed code. Chris, it's just great to have you on the program. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to join the the podcast. Chris, as we begin, let's talk a little bit about AdvaMed and its purpose. AdvaMed is a trade association based in Washington, D.C. We're a global organization. We have offices in Washington, California, uh, Beijing, and relationships around the world. And we represent the interests of the medical technology industry and the patients we serve. All right, Chris, what do we have here? We've got a trade association and we've got a code of ethics. How did those two seemingly opposite concepts come together? And what is AdvaMed trying to do here 
with the medical technology industry. There are two reasons why Avamed prioritized a code of ethics for our industry. The first is that it's the view of our board and of our industry that every medical device is placed in a doctor's office or the operating room or the presence of patient care is driven by the latest science and the patient's best interests and safety is priority number one. That is, that the research, the innovation, the training, and other bona fide bases for relationships between medical device manufacturers and healthcare providers should have nothing to do with the procurement decision-making process. In short, ethics and integrity are essential to instilling confidence in the medical decision-making process. Our board recognizes that that's the primary reason why this industry has prioritized a code of ethics. But another reason is, is a bit more practical. Medical technology companies operate in a very complex legal environment. They're subject to regulation and laws on a global basis by a number of governmental authorities in every country, um, a number of governmental agencies. There's regulations, statutes, sub-regulatory guidance that apply to this industry. And only some of those laws are originally intended to address this industry. So in short, that leaves many gray areas, many gaps. And for that reason, our code of ethics helps to fill those gaps, provide greater clarity. And in that sense, it's a, an exercise of self-regulation. It's a responsible thing for an industry to do. It's an exercise of um, corporate responsibility. Chris, as I recall, this isn't the first iteration of your code of ethics, is it? No, it isn't. Our industry launched a code of ethics back in 1972 initially, and it's been revised and updated periodically since that period. Um, but we reopened the code voluntarily within the last year because we thought it was time to take another look at, at our code of ethics to ensure that it was still serving our industry well. This is an extension of our commitment to responsible self-regulation in this industry. We performed a gap analysis. We interviewed other stakeholders. We tested our code against some of the current statutes, some of the proposed legislation as well. In addition, this is a transformative time for the medical technology industry. The industry is no longer simply a vendor to a healthcare provider or to a surgeon or other healthcare um, practitioner. Instead, these are solutions providers. They provide technology, data, services, research, analysis, and perhaps some products as well. So the industry itself has been transformed through advances in science and technology and enhanced capabilities, as well as more sophisticated demands and requests from those who require the services and solutions that medical technology companies provide. And finally, we updated our code to recognize the maturation of the compliance function within medical technology companies and across corporations more broadly. Our code recognizes that compliance is a commitment of the board and the executive team overall. Those functions own compliance and have responsibility for compliance. And for that reason, we revised our code to speak more to those audiences and to provide guidance on culture, on corporate values, um, and to move away from a strictly a rules-based code of ethics. Chris, would it be stretching it too much to say that that reflects uh, what's going on in the healthcare provider side as well in terms of some of those motivations and some of the evolution and change in the industry? I think that's an accurate observation. The industry itself is moving ahead together, but our code recognizes that there have been some profound changes for medical technology companies in particular and that their role within the broader industry has changed and is poised to bring further positive transformation to the industry as a whole. 
Yeah, I've been involved with a number of corporate governance principle preparation and best practices developments over the years. I kind of understand how those come together. Can you paint the room for us? What was who's in the room developing these? How long did it take? What was the exchange of ideas? Uh, did everybody agree all the time uh, or are there different constituencies? Help us understand how you came to this pretty important document. Those are very good questions and ones that we consider very carefully before we launched the process. Previously, I mentioned that we had revised our code over a period of years. In each of those other instances, our code was largely drafted by lawyers, lawyers from across our industry, um, outside experts and others, former government officials, whose views and perspectives were very important. But that resulted in a code that was drafted by lawyers and read primarily by lawyers and compliance professionals. This document was drafted by a broader group, representative of the broader readership. We had executives at the table, CEOs, CEOs from every technology type and sector in the medical um, technology space, from customers, um, hospitals. We sought the perspectives of academic medical centers, of surgeons, of general practitioners. We sought the perspectives of former government officials as well. So all of those views were collected and um, brought to a code drafting team that consisted primarily of professionals across our industry, across many disciplines, regulatory officials, lawyers, compliance officers, and executives, as I said. And um, that group together uh, with our team, our Avamed staff team, drafted this document and then brought it through multiple levels of review through our governance process, our Avamed governance process. That resulted in a top-down review of this document and ultimately approval by our 60-member board of directors. That's a CEO-based um, governance body, and there was a unanimous approval of the document last December. How long of a timetable are we talking about? That was a nine-month process. Our initial diligence and overall review and scan for potential edits and revisions and planning began three months before that, so a year in total before we produced a new code of ethics. And then we, um, once our board approved the code of ethics, we decided that we would give industry a one-year period to come into compliance and to um, begin the training and for us to hold our, our industry to this code of ethics. So the code becomes effective January 1st of 2020. We wanna come back to that in a second, Chris, but let's talk about the real sizzle here. Uh, share with us from your perspective, what stands out what should cause people to really focus in on what you've done? Sure. I'd highlight a few things. Number one, it's a values-based document. At the beginning of our code of ethics, the first few pages, in fact, focus on a series of values. We call these the cornerstone values that should govern every, every decision that a medical technology executive or representative might make with regard to their relationships with, um, with healthcare practitioners and healthcare providers. And if I can just pull open my code, I can just refer to a few of those um, key cornerstone values for, um, for this conversation. We established the following cornerstone values. One, innovation. Two, education. Three, integrity. Four, respect. Five, responsibility. And six, transparency. Those are set out in our code of ethics. At the outset, as I described, they're defined in every decision um, that a medical technology executive or other professional might make within the company relative to their interactions with healthcare professionals should be based on those, notwithstanding the rules and more nuanced points that are set out in the remainder of the code. So the reason why that's important is that we seek to empower executives, empower others um, not, who do not necessarily have a compliance function within the 
within the medical technology companies to own compliance as well and to embody it and to make ethical decisions. So that's the first key substantive change. Secondly, we included a, a new provision to highlight the importance and the obligation, in fact, of a medical technology company to communicate information on the safe and effective use of the medical technology within the healthcare context. In this regard, our companies will provide truthful and non-misleading information on the use of medical technology to enable healthcare professionals to exercise their own professional judgment on how to use a medical technology um, on behalf of patients or within the healthcare setting. And last, we included a new provision on jointly conducted education and marketing activities. This is intended to address scenarios where, and arrangements where medical technology companies and physicians or hospitals or other types of providers might together highlight not only the technology, but the healthcare practitioner's capability to use that technology. That's important because technology is increasingly sophisticated. It requires specific training, a specific infrastructure to, to use that technology in a safe and most effective way. Uh, out of all these three, the big ones, what's been the most controversial uh, ethics provision that you've seen so far? Where's the most of the pushback come? And, and what are the ones that surprise you in terms of their acceptance by your members? I think the one that's generated, I wouldn't say necessarily that any of them are controversial. However, I would say that the one that has generated um, recently the most questions concerns the jointly conducted education and marketing programs. You know, I think that's because the role of the medical technology company is changing very quickly. And as I said, medical technology companies are no longer simply vendors to hospitals or academic medical centers, perhaps, but instead they're solutions providers, they're partners in the provision of patient care. And this really captures the nature of that partnership. They're partners in care, and so they're partners in how they talk about that care and how that care can be delivered most effectively. What are the hospitals saying about that particular policy? How are they adjusting to it? We haven't surveyed the hospital community following the release of our code. We've coordinated closely with the hospital associations to, um, to promote training and education and so forth. But this does reflect some of the input of the stakeholder groups that we convened at the outset, including the academic medical centers and other hospitals. And they've recognized a need for um, some greater clarity in this area. Let's pivot now for a moment to our regular short segment, What's Trending Now? When we try and flag a new governance issue we see on the horizon. And for me today, it's the critical connection between quality of care and corporate governance. There's been an increasing number of very prominent instances in which quality of care crises at healthcare facilities are tied in part to failures of board oversight of patient safety. Some of these crises have involved disheartening events at major children's hospitals and have also been the subject of internal investigation and substantial media coverage. These oversight issues align with the focus placed on enforcement by CMS, state health departments, and accrediting organizations. Alleged deficiencies related to the role of the governing body are commonly cited by these agencies alongside quality-related clinical and operational findings. The board should consider working with the general counsel to evaluate current governance oversight of its patient safety issues and using these recent developments as a guide, better ensure that its oversight practices are in compliance with regulatory and legal requirements, as well as reputational concerns. 
Now, let's get back to Chris White. Chris, as you look out over your membership, is there a typical officer position where oversight of the Code of Ethics applies or compliance with the Code of Ethics applies? Is this a legal counsel position? Is this a a corporate compliance uh, responsibility? Is it management? What are you seeing across the industry in terms of who gets tagged with the responsibility for making sure the Code of Ethics is complied with? It's an excellent question, Michael. I'm glad you're raising it. And it's one that we considered very carefully. From our perspective as the industry association, it's a CEO commitment, it's it's an executive commitment, and it needs to be communicated from the top throughout the organization. Everyone ultimately within the corporate enterprise owns the code of ethics and they're held to the code of ethics. From our perspective, we ask that CEOs sign on to the code of ethics before they can uh, stand for election to our board. Uh, We have a a code certification process that we post publicly on our website where we require the the CEO and chief compliance officer's signature attesting that they have um, instituted programs and policies within their corporation to ensure that the code of ethics is given effect and followed. What is the AdvaMed's ability to enforce compliance with the ethics? Ultimately, is it on a corporate by corporate basis? Is it discretionary? Uh, what is the teeth in the policy? That's another question that we've considered very carefully, and we can we continue to consider this question. You know, ultimately, as I described earlier, this is an exercise in responsible self-regulation. Um, Our industry takes self-regulation very seriously, and there are a number of measures that we can take as a trade association. Um, but we as a trade association also recognize that we're an association of competitors and therefore subject to antitrust authorities and other Um, others that would impose limits on how we might enforce um, an agreement such as the Code of Ethics. So um, what we currently, our current approach, which is under evaluation, is that we have instituted um, processes within our organization to ensure that any company executive who seeks a leadership position within our organization must sign on to our Code of Ethics. As I said, there's a connection between governance and code sign-on. There is um, the public process where we post um, the certifications of companies that have signed on to our code of ethics. We've instituted a number of fora where uh, companies can have a dialogue directly with one another. If a compliance officer, for example, at one company learns of behavior by another company, they can communicate directly with that compliance officer and resolve things within um, within our industry through that type of peer-to-peer communication. It's those types of arrangements that we seek to foster. We do not have the authority as a trade association. We've not been granted the authority by our board, nor do we have it um, as uh, given the type of entity that we are to um, bring an action against our code of ethics or to launch an investigation against one of our members. Um, But we recognize that there are a, a number of enablers that we could pursue with various governmental authorities to seek to create a pull and an incentive for um, responsible corporate behavior, including sign on to our code of ethics. So that might include, for example, um, extra credit or points provided to companies in the procurement process or a competitive bidding context for, um, for signing on to our code of ethics. We have a number of strategies similar to that that we are advancing here in the United States and in markets around the world. Is there a way that you can monitor the extent to which members of your association and others are adopting this and uh, reporting their compliance with it? Yes, we survey on a regular basis. And so we we will be uh, tracking and accumulating that data. 
you know, once this code becomes effective, the expectation is that all companies will, will abide by this code and then we'll begin to relaunch some of our surveys and, and so forth. You know, I should mention that our code um, that we're describing here today is a US-based code. It applies to company interactions with United States healthcare practitioners, wherever they may be. Um, and given that innovation and uh, research and scientific exchange occurs on a global basis, that means that this code of ethics applies to hospitals that might have a, an affiliate or um, a branch in the Middle East, in London, in Europe, in Asia, or elsewhere, as we've seen with some of the more sophisticated uh, hospital systems here in the United States. And physicians, too, are um, maybe uh, deployed around the world for a variety of reasons, but yet they're U.S. licensed uh, physicians, and this code applies to them wherever they may be. In addition to the United States code, we have a number of programs around the world. We launched a new code of ethics two years ago in China that applies to company interactions with healthcare professionals in China. As you know, healthcare professionals in China are also government officials in some regard. Um, we have a number of initiatives um, on a more regional basis across Asia, across Latin America, the Middle East, um, and elsewhere to harmonize code of, codes of ethics and to bring local uh, national codes of ethics within those regions in line with the, um, the standards set in the Avamid code as well. You've mentioned that this is obviously a values-based uh, code and the onus is principally on the chief executive officer. What do you perceive as the role of, of boards of your members in implementing the code? You know, we recognize that the board ultimately owns compliance, but we're contemplating the best way to reach the boards of, um, of this diverse group of companies, recognizing that medical technology um, business units reside within multi-industry um, multi entities. And therefore, there are some complexities in reaching boards of organizations of that type. Most of the members, uh, most of Avamid's members, though, are small companies and their boards are um, are more easily ascertainable, and, um, and, and we can launch training programs specific to those as we have, for example, compliance boot camps and so forth. Chris, I, you know, I, I'm very intrigued by the concept of uh, this being a value-based approach, that it's not written by the lawyers. Uh, your experience is that, uh, the, that the language and the wording and, and the terms used in the code really makes a difference, staying away from legalese? Yes, it does. The previous version of our code was, uh, was all text. It, it included a number of definitions. It was drafted almost as a government agency would draft a regulation or a lawyer might draft an opinion letter. There was kind of a preamble, there were definitions, and then there were specific provisions, and they were outlined and titled as if it were a statute, as I said, or some other legal authority. We recognize that that could be intimidating. We recognize that um, it narrowed the readership and the overall um, utility of the document, and perhaps even its value. So we thought it was important to reframe the document so that it would be easily accessible. We also recognize that in our industry, given the transformative time that I described earlier, there are a number of new entrants. We have um, a number of technology companies, for example, that are not traditional medical technology companies, but yet they're launching new programs and products that would be regulated by the FDA as medical devices and therefore they're new entrants to our industry. So if you imagine um, Oracle or Microsoft or Apple or Google, and they're looking at the code of ethics for the first time 
it should be a document that speaks to them as well, as well as other new entrants. So for that reason, we find that the, the overall appearance in the text makes a substantial difference in its overall uptake and effectiveness. What's your feedback been from legislatures and government itself? Overall, it's been very positive. And, you know, I reflect on some of the one-on-one -on -one conversations that I've had, some of the um, more formal dialogue and exchanges that we've had, as, as well as just some of the, the body language and, and reading between the lines as best one can. Of course, no government agency is going to endorse the code of ethics. It's an exercise in responsible corporate self-regulation, as I described earlier. And what we hope is that the government views this as an industry premised on um, integrity and ethics and with a serious and substantial commitment to get it right. Um, and I think they recognize this as a good faith effort in self-regulation. I have not heard any criticism. I have heard um, that the new code is welcomed by regulators um, in a variety of agencies and countries. Uh, and as you know, it, it, is, um, it is required under state law in some of the United States that companies abide by the AFMA Code of Ethics. So we've alerted our, um, our government colleagues in, in those states, and they've acknowledged receipt and will update their guidance accordingly. Well, Chris, a couple more questions, if I may. As you know, about a month and a half ago, the Department of Justice released a very extensive rewrite of its own compliance program guidelines. And obviously, uh, in many industries, the general counsel and the compliance officer are working hard to get senior leadership to uh, look at those guidelines and to make amendments to their existing compliance programs to address what the Department of Justice is trying to say. Uh, do you have any kind of uphill battle when, or pushback from uh, your executives and your board leaders saying, wait a minute, we've already got this one document that we're just trying to digest. Why do we need a code of ethics? Why can't we accomplish all of our compliance-based goals by following what the DOJ has told us they're sending prosecutors to look at? Why do we need something else? As I said, it's a complicated industry and it's a complicated legal environment that companies in this space encounter. There are a number of important government agencies. They all speak with authority. And what each of those agencies states, all of their guidance, it's all very important. But not all of it is intended specifically for our industry. And our code is, is, uh, is a distillation of all of those authorities applied specifically to the medical technology innovators and manufacturers. And so I think the general counsel within the companies are sophisticated and understand that when the government speaks, it's speaking more broadly across multiple industries and industrial sectors, and that the code is the most applicable to, to this industry and not duplicative. Chris, one final question. A number of the organizations who listen to this podcast are in the healthcare industry, and they're pursuing medical technology, innovation, broad pharmaceutical investments that, as you know, they're diversifying at a rapid geometric rate. Is there a point at which the health system this with a highly diversified portfolio needs to be looking at the AdvaMed policy or something similar? When do the interests in the strategic plans of health systems uh, coincide with the purposes and goals of your code of ethics? Do they meet at some point? Absolutely. They meet at two points. First, healthcare providers are partners in innovation, they're partners in research, and they're partners in patient care with the medical technology industry. Although our code speaks to the medical technology industry, 
um, and the medical technology industry is held accountable to our code, the hospitals and others need to understand what we view as ethical. There are times when many healthcare systems are developing new technologies of their own that they use for their own patients to serve their own communities or um, in partnership with payers or medical technology companies on their own. And in that regard, they have become medical technology companies and therefore uh, their arrangements could fall within the scope of the Avamed code and they need to review it for that reason. Let's push this one more level before we quit. You're in a room with 500 healthcare lawyers and compliance officers. Why should they read the Avamed code of ethics uh, with respect to their own responsibilities and duties? We all operate in a complex legal environment. Um, it's a dynamic industry. We're all under a lot of pressure from various vectors. And the, the risks of fraud and abuse enforcement are real. There are a number of authorities out there that, and they're all actively enforced. Um, we're partners in patient care, we're partners in innovation, and we're partners in bringing medical technology and healthcare solutions to patients. Some of those relationships can be subject to scrutiny and we, as a medical technology industry, take our responsibilities to ethics and integrity very seriously. And these are the rules that we set out for ourselves. And we welcome a dialogue around any of these rules. And we think that to the extent that they touch um, your operations, uh, they're important for you to know and understand as well. Self-regulation in any industry sector is a critical component of demonstrating good faith and commitment to compliance with applicable law. One of the values of the Advamed Code of Ethics, as I see it, is that it provides a template for that type of self-regulation in the healthcare sector as well. And Chris, it seems to me ultimately that the real message that I would take away uh, from the healthcare provider sector is this focus on ethics, uh, the focus on values, and the focus on conveying these messages in plain English and, and asking the, the chief executive to buy into it in terms of a statement of who we are. Uh, grandiose observations, but it seems that's what you're focusing on and that's what you've really achieved, I think, in this sector. That's very well stated, Michael. I agree, thank you. Chris White, thanks so much for sharing with us your perspectives on what has truly become a critically important document in the compliance industry, the AdMed Code of Ethics, well worth the review by board, audit and compliance committees, by general counsel, and by their compliance officers. Chris, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much, Michael. It's a pleasure to join you. Chris White gives us all substantial food for thought today. Advamed's new Code of Ethics has been updated to bring examples current, enhance user friendliness, and address the evolving nature of healthcare professionals' interactions with medtech companies in a number of key areas. In that way, it's a very prominent model by which other types of health organizations can review their own existing organizational codes of ethics and consider upgrades where necessary. There's a lot of lessons to be learned here. Thanks so much for joining us for today's episode of Governing Health. Be sure to subscribe to the full complimentary podcast series. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube, as well as through the McDermott website. There you'll be able to stay up to date on all our future episodes and to re-listen to the old ones. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Peregrine, saying thanks so much for listening. 
This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott will Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of the consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2019, McDermott Will Emery, all rights reserved, and use of these materials including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. The prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.